Bronx, episode nine. We are the podcast that celebrates Bronx creatives and change makers. And I'm your boy, KB. What's happening, beautiful people? It's your boy, Jay. Before we jump right into this episode, I do want to take a second to thank our audience for listening and supporting. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with us. So today we have a very, very, very special episode. We have a good and dear friend of mine joining us today. So he is the executive director of the Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative. He is the co-founder of the Bronx Brotherhood Project. He is a researcher with the Bronx African American History Project. He has taught at a bunch of uh, colleges all around New York City. He is a cultural anthropologist, a hip hop historian. He is a father of three. He is a dedicated husband. And I get to call him one of my dear friends. And I don't really get to say nice things to him in person, or I choose not to. So today I'm gonna be really nice. But we have brother Michael Partis with us today. What's happening, hey, how fellas? Feeling, bro? How you feeling, brother? I'm good, fellas. I'm good. Thank you for the for the luxurious introduction. I was like, whoa, okay. More than a resume. You gave it a little more oomph, like a little more than a resume. So I appreciate that. No doubt, no doubt. We don't get to always interview people that we know so personally. So it, it felt mm. only right. Felt only right. I'm excited to be here with y'all. No doubt, brother. We appreciate you. What's happening? This is also one of my OGs. Call him OG <laughs> Mike. Kev's brother, my OG. No so doubt. He, he literally, yo, Mike, he really does call you OG Mike. <laughs> I started wearing like, like you know, Frankie Beverly, these trucker hats, these dad hats. And now it's like I don't age 20 years in the process of wearing these hats. I take it though, man. I take it. I take it. I appreciate it. That's what we should be doing, right? We should be learning and growing and then each one teach one. So and I mean, OG, I, I wear it with a badge, man. I appreciate that. I take that. Taking the stride. My stride a little slower than it was, but still quick with it. Yo, I hear it. I hear it, family. We're excited to have you on. So, Mike, I know Kevin had an amazing intro. You're doing so much. You really represent the Bronx well with everything you have done and continue to do. But tell us a little bit about who you really are. What do these titles mean for you? I mean, I... I describe myself as a, a free black man, a free black man who's perpetually trying to ensure that others have freedom and power as well. And I think the way that we do that, you know, we do that through education, we do that through community building, and we do that through like a value system. So you, you gotta have those three things and that's shaped a lot of my life from the value system part, thinking about culture, studying it, practicing it with other people. Community building is key. I spent a lot of time in like facilitation and, you know, kind of building groups and different initiatives. Those things are, are really critical. And, and I find myself as a facilitative leader, growing and always building in that way. And then, you know, first and foremost, like education is key. And education is, is, a, is a lifelong pursuit, not just the individualistic or early stage one. So I, I feel that the educating piece, and that's not just in a classroom at a whiteboard or in the classroom at a chalkboard or a book where somebody can reference you. Like that educational piece is just how you live in the world and then other people model it. It's taking the time out to give advice to others. You know, those are the kind of things that require patience and empathy and listening and learning and improving. All right, that's what education is. And so I try to practice that from when I was in the classroom in a formal manner to, you know, workshops or, or speak with other people. You know, I think those are the ways that we get to be free. And um, I try to practice that as best as I can, as closely as I can, and evolve in that way. 
So I, I think of myself as a free black man trying to help others be free and build power and community those through those three ways. That's that was super dope. See, the problem with interviewing somebody like you is just all the questions that I had are now just thrown out the window because I have now a million more questions. If you could elaborate a little bit on what it means to be a free black man and how does one get there, right? So I know you said through community, through values. Can you talk a little bit more about what your journey was becoming a free black man? So, so in my background, I'm, I'm actually like a first generation American on my mother's side. My family is originally from Belize. And we're from an ethnic group called the Gaifuna. And one unique thing, there's a lot of unique things about Gaifuna culture, you know, people of African descent who still practice indigenous and um, African centric practices in Central America and throughout the diaspora, wherever they're at. One unique thing about Gaifuna is kind of like that independent streak, that streak for autonomy, but not an individualistic autonomy, right? Not an individualistic freedom, but a sense of, you know, we understand the world and we have a, a knowledge system about that world and we want to be able to practice that and it should be as long as it's not creating harm or violence towards others we should be free to do that and that might mean that the dancing is different the language is different the song is different but that's okay right because that's what society is a bunch of different groups who got a little swag and a little drip and a little bit of everything to what they do so Gaifinas, you know are african descended people who really have that kind of independence and that that sense of freedom and self-determination. So I, I think just growing up in, in that cultural background, my mother and my grandmother raised me. So I, I think that definitely built that in me. That's, and so freedom, you know, if you think about it that way, that's my like background, but I think that part of freedom also relates to the ability to have community, you know, and that, that, that community teaches each other and then that community and others, right, who are willing to learn, and that community also has a, an important value system. So freedom becomes about that community that you build. Freedom becomes about how do you teach and engage and learn. And freedom ultimately becomes about like the culture, right? The culture is like the ideas that are important, and then you do something to represent them. Growing up in the Bronx, you know, I saw a lot of that, not just you know in my in my ethnic group. But like growing up at Hutch Point and growing up in, in the 90s in the, in the Bronx, you see a lot of independent kind of thought. You have the people, you know, you have like folks who got to go to their nine to five job, but they always got like a little swag, a little like flavor to it. So the analogy I love is if you've been seeing this um, documentary about Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, he was in one of the scenes in the episodes, he was gambling with the um, security guards. But the security guard who looked like, he looked like Bob from, from Martin, like with the, with the shag and the blonde hair. But the dope part, and my OG Dallas Penn had pointed this out, but I peeped it too. The OG had on his blazer, the lapel, he had the jump man, right? So just like little ways that like our culture is going to be a part of something. And it's not just like the capitalist part, but we strive for that thing we find that thing to be important and then we represent that and we're going to show it you know growing up in the bronx in, in, in the kind of second wave of hip-hop culture there's tons of that there's tons of not just having uptowns but having uptowns with flavor so like what what kind of colors can you get or what kind of spray paint can you get what kind of customs can you do with it growing up in that kind of place there was a lot of freedom for a lot of freedom around our culture, like the way we understand how to make money, the way we understand 
showing each other love and respect, the way we believe in supporting one another, that looks different from the rest of the world. And that means sometimes if you're wearing a blazer, you throw a, a, a athletic lapel on it. Sometimes that means your song and your dance sound different. But the, I think the biggest part was similar to Gaifuna, similar to growing up in the Bronx and that kind of hip hop culture, was that there was a tremendous sense of like pride in it. And there was a tremendous acceptance that, yo, it's different. And that's all right. It's different than how they do it in Brooklyn, right? It's different. You know, we all love polo, right? But it's different than low life. It's different than Harlem. It's different than like texturized hair and like, you know, valleys and all of that. Like, it's just different. And there was a deep pride in that. And I think there was a, a, a level of acceptance of that. And so that level of acceptance and that level of pride and being in a place that, you know, understands how to create and, and utilize their own thing from my family side or from growing up in the Bronx side, I think that allowed me to define freedom, to be like, I'm going to wear what I want. I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to find community with people. You know what I'm saying? Because that's, that's really important. I'm not just a renegade, but, you know, it allowed me to say, well, freedom is about self-determination and you need all these other pieces to get there. And so I try to be, a, a, as much as I can, a free black man to self-determine, like, my value system, how I educate others and the community that I build. And I practice that publicly in the hopes that I'll do mentorship or teaching or just like grabbing a word with somebody or just being quiet and listening to others and then improving yourself as a way for us all to build our freedom, right? We live in the opposite of that these days, totalitarian kind of state we be dealing with. So for me, it's a lot of, you know, I didn't build this alone is what I grew up into uh, for my family side, ancestry, and, and the place base. I was lucky to grow up in the Bronx, New York at the particular time that I did. No doubt, no doubt. Live from the Bronx, we're here with Mike Partis, Michael Partis in the building. So I just have, I have a ton of questions about this, about this freedom stuff, but how, how can you reconcile this idea of, of being free, and you touched on it with our current government, with when there's so many things telling you that you are not free, right? Um, mm. You could be just going for a run and you could be, be gunned down by two, two white dudes because they thought that you were robbing something or you could be priced out of your neighborhood or you could be like, how do we reconcile? I'm free, but when the world is trying to tell you, no, you're not. So something else about my background and, and how did I try to practice freedom is, you know, the Bronx that I grew up in, I grew up right off of Southern Boulevard. So I grew up on Bryan Avenue, uh, right across the street from PS75 Park, right in like the Hudson Point section of the Bronx. That entire part of the Bronx current is on the precipice of gentrification. Not quite, right? Like the population, the people who live there, that really hasn't changed. It's still mostly working class to working poor. A lot of people who are in scattered site housing, temporary housing, the population hasn't changed. but the Land, the, prop, the, the value of property has changed. The, the value of land has changed. The businesses, the type of businesses that are from when I grew up to now, those things have changed. And then the last part that's kind of begun to change is that will the government that we all consent to, will that government change the zoning laws in the Southern Boulevard area in order for there to be even different type of housing and um, businesses? In that sort of way, we always have to figure out where is our power? because everything that I just laid out and what's changed mm. in that area of the Bronx, from when I grew up in the early, early 90s to now, 
most of it has changed, right? And in a sad way, most of it has changed without the residents owning those businesses as they evolve, owning that property as it evolves. Like it, it hasn't moved. And now government could do the final part. I think part of the freedom, the aspect of it is that it's informed, right? We want to be free, not stupid. And this is a like critical point. Free, not stupid. And one pathway to avoid stupidity is to be informed. If you are informed, you will allow yourself to be able to connect through information and analysis. You will allow yourself to connect with other people who understand the issues. And then y'all build y'all plans together. And this is a very important thing. We want to be free, not stupid. We want to be free, not stupid. And if we want to be free, what one of the pathways is to use information and analysis to move away from following, being told, or being the last ones to recognize when something has shifted. So it, 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 in, in that Southern Boulevard example, part of the way that you build freedom is you start to talk to other people in these neighborhoods who work there or live there and say, hey, you know, what happened to that? You know, we used to have um, a, a, a Bank of America on that corner. What happened to it? Oh, what happened to the 99 cent store, double discount? It was there for all my life. Like, where did it go? Where is it at now? You know, things like that. You start building through conversation. You start building through awareness. And then the freedom is like, well, we want to have a different plan. Like somebody else got a plan. We want to have our own plan, right? And, and a lot of America is about people who have plans and then executed those plans. A lot of people have plans and then they executed those plans. They wanted the freedom to build their own plan and execute that. That is the history of colonization. That is the history of enslavement. That is the history of Jim Crow. That is the history of the reformer and on and on and on. That's the history of the Obama era, right? I, I think the critical part, think about us in the Bronx again, and, and what I mean by like freedom in the face of people telling you others is that you find power in community. You find freedom in others who use information, do analysis, willing to teach and learn in the way that you are have similar values are able to build community and then you get that's how the freedom becomes power like all of us in our free selves are in a community to build power and this is what we want in the southern boulevard area this is what we want in huts point when you have the numbers then you have power when i used to work in politics um like running campaigns that was the biggest thing right it's the win number it's about people how many people do you have at the table willing to push for this thing it's similar to what we tell people in education, right? Like if enough students want it or if enough parents want it, people gonna listen. You go to your elected official right now and you tell them, hey, you know, virtual learning isn't working. We wanna go, you know, we wanna have socially distant learning in Katona Park. Like draw the lines, spread us out. You get the big, you get the big screen out there during the summertime for movie night. I want that same big screen to show like classroom, classroom uh, uh, lessons and activities, and we'll be socially distant. If you went right now to your principal by yourself, one teacher, one person, principal might be like, all right, maybe, you know. But if you go to your principal with 75% of the parents in your building, 100% of the students, if you go to your elected official and say, well, I got 200 voters, 200 people eligible, registered to vote, and this is what we want for our remote learning. We don't want it to be that remote. We want it to be in Katona Park, in St. Mary's Park, socially distant, with a big screen, in multiple areas where we can do multiple different class um, classes, where we can do exercise instead of the kids trying to do gym in a little apartment, they can do it there. There's a tremendous power in that. 
But that's how we get from, I want to be free. And a lot of times thinking of it in an individual way to building towards a freedom that's based on education, community building and culture. And then the last phase of that is then to become the decision maker. We're not asking you to make our plan. Like we have the autonomy to make the decisions for our group and ourselves. And that's the last hurdle. That's a little bit of a different challenge, but you know, that that's, that's how we do it. That's what the historical president has shown. Um, whether you're nationalist, like a, whether you're a Puerto Rican nationalist, whether you're a black liberation person, whether you are even a regular like liberal, you know, like that's how the game is. And so for me, I, I again, I just try to live that and model that and, and try to, you know, hopefully bring it into others that our, our greatest strength is not to show fear and, and to work together. But that becomes stressful, right? People is people, people could be whack. Wow, you you hit us with so much right now, dropping gem after gem after gem. And I love just sitting here listening, feeling like one of probably one of your students, right? In class and, and, and just watching you talk and build. And I think a lot of what you shared is is so powerful for us to really hear and think about everything from the diaspora to to teaching others to building community to being informed, amazing stuff. And as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about all of this, I'm also wondering, when did you start to really think about this on, as we think of like a higher level of consciousness or freedom? What, was there a moment in life where something happened and you felt like, nah, we have to do something about this? What is, was it a, a number of collective things that have impacted you? Take us through this journey a little bit of like the early beginnings of you really thinking about freedom. I think a lot of this started when I was a kid, my mother and grandmother raised us. Four things that came on our TV or radio a lot. One thing was sports. News was always on, like, and not this cable news kind of thing, like, but that's like the news, like morning news, evening news, the news was always on. Anytime somebody black in a positive way was on TV, my mother was like, we got like, turn it on. Like, we got to watch it. And then the fourth thing was PBS, public television, which was interesting. But we was always pushed and encouraged to watch PBS. If we're going to watch some TV, try to watch PBS. Because my family felt that that was, um, like, educational programming that was important. I had a really remarkable early childhood education. I went to a preschool. It was called United Bronx Parents. It was in the South Bronx, uh, right off of Reverend James Polite. And 163rd Street was our, uh, it's still there. The building is still there. And it was an amazing kind of education. I'm going to tell you why. We, one, had sit-down breakfast and lunch. Like, you sit down. There's a serving, serving spoons. We learn English and Spanish. So everybody was, like, bilingual really early. Like, you learn leche. You learn bonos de, like, really early. Like, everybody get bilingual was important. And then the third piece was at the, at the kindergarten graduation, as an example, at the kindergarten graduation, we all had to learn parts of Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream speech. So this was a, I mean, five years old, little five-year-old, oh, six-year-old, yeah. like wrote memory, trying to learn MLK um, speeches. So this was a different kind of place. It was actually founded by a Puerto Rican educator, Evelina Antonetti. She came to the Bronx, believed in early education. In 1970, started this daycare. So, you know, hashtag, don't let anybody tell you that we haven't been thinking about early childhood education. That daycare really built the consciousness in us quite early. In high school, I think one of the biggest things that, that impacted me was when I read The Bluest Eye. 
and just thinking about Pacolia, the protagonist in that, and, and just how she was trying to deal with trauma. And then in the end, just to wrap it up, when I got to college, or when I got in my 20s, two experiences was key. One experience was a good friend of ours was in the C-STEP program, and she was like, hey, they have food, but they got somebody I really want you to come here speak. This is like week five of college. His name was Panama Alba. Panama Alba was a part of the Young Lords, one of the leaders in the Young Lords movement. And listening to him that day talk about like activism and community and doing it right there in the Bronx, I think it really stuck, stuck with me. And you could, you know, Panama still got some interviews on YouTube. Um, he's still here, you know, like he's somebody definitely to talk to. But just that one day listening to Panama talk to like 20 students um, about organizing, about justice, about revolution, about power, um, about being community-based and driven. That was really powerful for me. And then the second experience in my 20s, particularly in college, was Malcolm X grassroots movement, uh, Free to Land. A lot of the activists now are doing different things. That kind of revolutionary, um, community-minded, Black self-determination um, kind of organizing work, that was like super, super, super powerful for me. And we went down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. We did Cop Watch. We organized after Sean Bell. Those were like really formative experience for me. So I think if you roll all of that up from my family and what my, my mother and my grandmother, what they tried to instill in us at home through place-based education, man, like United Bronx Children was like fundamental for me into like my teens and my self-education and reading and through, you know, being willing to show up someplace where somebody says, I think it's outside for you and having enough like openness to hear what works for you and to hear what didn't. And I heard a lot, um, from like Panama and his experience with the Young Lords and MXGM, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, Free the Land, that I was able to take a lot from them. And so that's, that's how I got to this point with like the education piece or being executive director of, of a nonprofit or any of the pieces of that, you know, that, that, that's part of the pathway. Live from the Bronx, we are here with Michael Pardis. So Mike, you kind of told, told, told us about your political journey and how, how you got got where you are now. For somebody starting out who doesn't necessarily have that same political awareness, maybe didn't grow up around it, maybe, but wants to kind of get involved and kind of figure out like where, want to learn more, where they, where do they stand? What are some of the things that you would tell them? Like, what should they be reading? What should they be learning? How should they go about that? Mm. I think, I think there's some corny advice, which is, you know, start a journal and start writing like how you feel. It's pretty important for any of our journeys to like self-awareness. Um, I also think like journaling is, is kind of important for us to think through like traumas that we've like suppressed or hidden or don't know that we triggered for, because that kind of healing allows you to be a more aware and conscious person in the world. So I think that the journaling piece is key. Uh, I think the second piece in terms of study, I think one of the most important things to study are anti-colonial movements and formations. So I spent a lot of time reading about, particularly from the 1940s through the 1980s, anti-colonial movements in the Caribbean, in Latin America, and in Africa. Uh, ultimately in Africa, we, you know, we're talking about Zaire and Zimbabwe, we're talking about Zambia. We, obviously, we're talking about anti-apartheid um, in South Africa, Steve Biko, folks like that. 
in the Caribbean. We're talking about Grenada and Maurice Bishop. We're talking about ultimately like Jamaica, Trinidad, when they when they get rid of the, and the other um, independent countries, when they get their independence and they get rid of the colonists. In Latin America, you know, a little bit of a different formation, but you know, what were, what did you see on the other side of the struggles in like Chile and El Salvador and Guatemala? So for me, like how people were colonized was a little bit like whatever, but for me to kind of have the consciousness about how do you organize, how do you work in a group, how do you like be sophisticated enough to be political publicly, but then like strategy internally. I, I, I looked at a lot of the um, anti-colonial uh, freedom fighters of the 1940s to 1980s. They were really important for me. And even somebody like rest in peace, Whitney Mandela, just like just those type of folks are just unbelievable. So that's for study. I think there's the personal part on the journaling. I think the study part, you know, my, my recommendation. There's also some great music from anti-colonial 1940s to 1980s. So if you think about, if you think that Jim Crow was colonial in the United States, you know, there's some tremendous, um, you know, we, we know it now, like Nina Simone and others, there's some tremendous freedom music there. There's some, obviously, in the uh, Western, in the Caribbean tradition, there's some tremendous freedom songs, you know, especially a lot of uh, dub poets, you know, so if you, if you listen to the dub poets, or listen to Marley, or listen to the last poets, or listen to you know, you know my man Felipe Luciano, another uh, person I heard early in my career who, who influenced me. There's a lot of dope music. I mean, Public Enemy is anti-colonial music. Um, Hugh Masekela is anti-political music. I mean, anti-colonial um, music. So you know, you could read, you could study, like read some books and some documentaries, or you could jump into the thing because art is the most popular part of education that we got. But, but I think that that's like the pathway. I think for our community and our youth right now, today, if you ask me like, what do they need for their self-determination and for their freedom? I'm talking about the kids in, 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 in East Orange, New Jersey, the kids in like Camden, the kids in Roxbury, Massachusetts, the kids in uh, Milwaukee, West Side of Chicago, Brownsville, East New York, the 90s. Uh, Burnside, Jerome Ave represent our, our, our neighborhoods in the BX. If you ask me what they need, right now I think we would be beneficial to get some healing for them kids to like journal and like do like farming and stuff to work with their hands to heal. I think for study, we need to really get into the anti-colonial movements of the 19, from 1940s to the 1980s just to have people to have a sense of like how we got to this moment and how to work together. And I think ain't nothing like a party, right? Uh, ain't nothing like a gangster party. So, you know, it, it, it helps to just think about the incredible kind of music like Gil Scott Heron and Neil and Nina Simone and Hugh Masekela and, and the dub poet, everybody that I mentioned already. Throw that, throw that music on, throw on that Roy Ayers, like throw on um, 80s hip hop. Like that music is political in of itself. And that's a part of freedom. Like, those people were free people to make that kind of sound. And that's what makes that a unique kind of music. You show that and show the art, you know, it don't gotta just be Basquiat, you know, it just ain't gotta be Bob Marley, and it just ain't gotta be Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Like there's a there's a bigger canon that we come from. That's what we need to be doing. Study groups, Zoom groups like this, um, chats where we just talk, that that's that's the way forward. That, I mean, I think that's part of my way forward, but that's my recommendation for y'all, you know, educators and and uh, people in media who, who got the biggest platform, your platform bigger than me, um, to support that kind of movement building.
Yo, Mike, the gems, Mike, the, this is why we wanted you here, right? What you are sharing is so important for the people to know. When we talk about liberation, there's so much that goes into that. I've been on my own journey to self-discovery and trying to figure out what liberation means while also trying to mentor and teach that to the youth as well. And other people, it's not just about the youth. We got people, as you, as y'all know, who grow up their entire life uh, subscribing to dominant culture, white culture, Eurocentric ideologies, and never have a chance to actually unpack and understand what liberation really means because there aren't people who get to lead us in that direction. We don't get to see that all the time. And so I think this is, this is such a special and powerful conversation. You mentioned so much. One of the things you mentioned was the beauty of, of art and music and the need for healing. And I am a big fan of hip hop myself. And a lot of what I try to think about is these elements of hip hop and how we can use those elements as we start to heal and, and we pursue our journey to self-discovery and liberation. And I think there's so much from what you mentioned earlier about community, about journaling, about coming together, about teaching each other. All of these things were happening in hip hop and you had the benefit of growing up during the golden age of hip hop in the Bronx where it all started. So I'm really curious to know what does all that mean for you and then, and how has hip hop influenced you on your journey? Mm. So a vivid, so one, I guess like this hip hop thing is a little like DNA. So my mother, so my family, you know, they came into the United States, my mother, on my mother's side, they came into the United States in the sixties in LA. They got to New York in the seventies. It was in Brooklyn in the like 74 sorry 74 they was on vice ave boom in the bronx 77 boom they on brian ave so my mother here's the point the point is that my mother her coming of age maps from r&b funk to disco to like hip-hop and the point is that by the time she became an adult she pivoted a lot more to like street culture hip-hop but you could have went into like the 80s, like, you know, uh, uh, um, Quiet Storm. Like, it could have been all Anita Baker, Luther, Luther's everybody. But you know what I mean? Like, she just pivoted towards, like, kind of that, the, the, the street culture and the hip-hop side. So my mother was, like, in the park, and she grew up in, up in the Bronx, like, all the park jams and all that kind of stuff. Now, I didn't know that until my uncle told me that. My uncle was a DJ, like, New Music Seminar. Like, he was in second place in 1989. Like, my uncle was really into music. He was the one that was like, my mother, your mother, my sister, she's the one that took me to the park when I would come down from Officer. He was in Brownsville when I would come from um, Saratoga Ave, when I would come down in the Bronx. Like, your mother would be the one, we got to go to this party. We got to go to this party. We got to go to this park jam. We got to go to this. And when I became, when I got into college and started to study it more, and you, the, one of the best things that we have as an archive is the flyers, the party flyers for hip hop jams in the 70s and 80s. And when you start to look at those jams, any of us from the Bronx, from a particular part of the Bronx, we're like, oh, like this is right here, right off of Boston Road, right off of Third Ave, right off of 180, East 180th, park jams all up in Millbrook and, and Mitchell and, and everywhere like that. So anyway, part of it, by the time I got around, my mother was like really into like Mary J. Blige, SWB, like everything. R&B, um, hip hop and R&B soul like she was into. So that was one part. The other piece is one of the most vivid memories I have as a kid was we was coming down Fail Avenue 
I was coming down Fail and 165th Street. Now, this is the infamous street because, like, actually, in that time, like, 94, 95, there was, like, a sniper. You can look at this in the, in the crazy stuff we grew up in back in those days. There was, like, a sniper up there. But when we walked down, one of my most vivid memories in, like, 93 was you could hear KRS, black cop, black cop, black cop, black cop, like, boom, boom, boom. Being in a place where that is the sound, you know what I'm saying? And, and there's a political view. I think like that, that kind of, those kind of things kind of shaped that we was listening to KRS, that you could walk down the street, that, you know, hip hop, both in, in party and in, and in lyric was like something that was in my family DNA. And, and it's crazy because it models like, you know, a West Indian or Caribbean family come and they get boom, zip, like linked up into hip hop right away. I think it shows you a lot about African diaspora. It shows you a lot about culture. But those were some of the pillars. So my mother was into it, and then I started getting into it, getting into it, into the sound. And in terms of how I link, like, hip-hop, hip-hop as a music to hip-hop as a worldview, for my healing and for my political consciousness, it probably is, like, Black Star's, um, the Black Star album, Talib and Most. That, like, blew my mind. Um, like, again... Not, maybe not like my favorite hip hop or rap album of all time kind of thing, but definitely up there. But in terms of like deeply influenced me, you know, even from the Black Star, like we talking about Garvey, we talking about Black Self-Determination. It was all very powerful. And that, that album really kind of shaped me. And then, you know, the rest of it is like, that, that's all prelude. The rest of it is, is what you read in that opening bio, uh, uh, Kev. <laughs> so thank you for that. So I'm going to keep it on. I'm going to keep it hip-hop for a minute. So Jay and I talk about this all the time. Jay's a little bit younger than me, and I sometimes, he sometimes makes me feel like an old head. So, <laughs> so today's music is, is, is different, right? I, I don't know if you can, and, I'm, and obviously you can find some artists that are more conscious, some artists that, are, that I would identify as free already, right? Or somewhere on their journey towards freedom. But a, a lot of the music that's put out is not that. So, so what would you say, right? Because the, the young, young people are listening to this music. What would you say about that? What's kind of your take on it? As I listen to music, some of the criteria that I have in terms of the quality are longevity, right? So will I want to listen to this later? So like Reasonable Doubt came out in, what, 96? Holds up. Uh, Illmatic came out, what, 94? Holds up. Outca like outcast first out like all of these albums that you can still listen to decades later some of the music now i'm not sure if it's going going to do that right and that's i guess another and jay and i could have that uh that that uh, conversation to the side and also like a skill level right the ability so i guess the two parts that i'm asking one what are your thoughts on the quality of the music and what are your thoughts of the content of the music because i i think i think it'll be interesting to hear your your perspective Hip-hop is youth culture. I think that's just something important for people to recognize, which in the second part means hip-hop will never be quite like the other music slash cultural forms in America. Maybe it could, it could evolve into like how jazz is a little bit. The only difference being, like jazz, you could come in at any point and have an appreciation of it. I think hip-hop is kind of getting to be that way a little bit, but different from jazz like 
the jazz musicians who are like like Jimmy Heath, rest in peace, or um, Donald Byrd, or Bobby Sanabria, right? Like they could go rock, and people gonna go listen to them today. Like hip hop is probably always gonna be like a young person's game, like, and then you are gonna age out of liking a, a particular part of it. That that's probably how it's gonna be. I think because of that, the you know let's let's line it up a little bit. The hip hop of the 80s that you heard was a lot of disco right black fun freedom we sick of like you know we want to recognize some of the benefits out of um the civil out of the civil rights struggle not like everything that went wrong meets the political like yo things is not right and we need to like have a unique art form to to speak to that so you get the Grandmaster Flash and the uh, people do making something out of nothing and turntables and, and using electricity out of out of street lamps. Then the music of the '90s was like of representing something, and 2000s was something. But to get to the point of now, the music of now kind of represents, in my opinion, like the economic trap that so many people who would be a millennial or I don't know what they call younger than millennials now. What they call them? Generation. Gener- I think that music represents a tremendous economic trap. And I actually think when you listen to someone like J. Cole, you know, even whatever about the rapping, like the the sentiment and the message is a lot of like, I'm in an economic trap that then creates an identity trap. And I'm figuring out my way out of that. Like J. Cole wants to be a free black man, I think. You know, it kind of sounds like to me, Kendrick Lamar wants to be a free black man, I think kind of sounds like that to me and not even to gender it right I don't want to be hyper masculine or, or, or overly patriarchal about it but their music kind of represents getting out of that that economic trap and that economic trap around the dependency of being a waged sort of non-voting decision-making laborer when you're constantly in that position right and the informal economy has changed because we grew up in an informal economy that lauded and praised drug dealers, right? Right, lauded, praised drug dealers, whether you're talking about Escobar, whether you're talking about Griselda, whether you're talking about Supreme Team or Cheeky or whoever. That celebration, you, you notice like in this music now, like scamming would be the, the, the comparison, ain't nobody lauding scamming. And it ain't because they, well, relatively, right? It ain't because they smarter, you know? But it's because like that economic pathway doesn't exist in the same way for them. Um, so you, the music kind of represents people who, you know, don't have a, a singular sort of sound. Like they're, they're, they're confused about how to make it out of this, right? They're confused about how to make it out of it. They're unsure. And the learning curve, it takes much longer to get educated and figured out, figure out how to make it out. Here's the example. KRS-One was rapping the way he was rapping at the age of like 23. MC Light was rapping the way she was rapping, like 21. Nas was rapping the way he was rapping, 16, 15. Prodigy was rap and Havoc were rapping the way they were rapping, Outkast. Like they were all very young, right? They had the sound because it's youth culture, but they had like a political perspective and understanding. I'm not saying our young people today don't. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that the economic kind of situation that they're in and the not obvious ways of getting out of that makes it like a jumble of confusion. 
right? And so you can see when they, when, when they make music and they're like 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, it sounds like that, right? It sounds like it, 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 it feels like directionless. The politics that you get out of it is like, what is it like to be somebody of that age with limited economic options in a, in a, in a, in a particular place? Not like, oh, we could organize a revolution. Like I could organize like a revolution kind of thing off a of Black Star. I don't know if I could do that off of Chef G. Not a diss, just the way that it is. But what I can do is understand those young people better. And I think the point that to, to wrap it up is that what's going to end up having to happen is that those young people are like kind of setting the way for what the next culture and art form will be. Because it probably ain't going to be hip hop. It's probably mm. actually going to be something else. And that's how the game goes. It might be an iteration of hip hop, but it's going to be something else. So that's what I think, Kev. I think that's how we got to take the messaging, the, the, the sound, the, the kind of other things that are happening. You know, we just got to understand it in time and place. You can't be mad at people confused and sounding crazy in a Trump world or people sounding confused and crazy, you know, where like their parents probably got to work 70 hours a week. And if their parents can't work 70 hours a week, their parents, you know, or themselves is stuck on like lean, right? Mm. And listening to Donald Trump every time they turn around mm. or getting misinformation on Facebook because, you know, more um, people who are sophisticated at computer programming and websites is just culture jamming them with nonsense and targeting them. Like, of course, people going, we in an age of mad misconfusion. But I think that's why y'all podcast is really critical, you know, and, and the kind of work that y'all do, which I do, period, in education and mentorship is the key. And just give them a little time, yo. They're going to they're gonna sound better. It's going to happen, man. You know, Smurda going to come out of jail super conscious and, like, making great. He's going to be a revolutionary. He's going to be, I'm speaking into existence. Smurda going to come home and Smurda going to be, like, you know, like, 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 like. <laughs> maybe or he gonna be like Malcolm. let's just let's let's elevate it a little bit um i hope you know what i'm saying i hope and thinking about what you're saying right one thing that i also think about with new artists new hip-hop artists is where does the mentorship take place if at all mm. because a lot of what you spoke about today and and in thinking about hip-hop and youth culture we know that executives are behind a lot of things and young artists who don't have the right people around them to help them really understand contracts and what they're signing up for. A lot of times, if we're not informed, we see money, given what our, some of our circumstances are, we feel as if I've never seen X amount of dollars. This could help me get out of current situation or this can help my family in some way. And sometimes we'll jump at that if we, the people around us aren't able to say, hey, let's let, hold on a quick second. Let's read through this. Let's understand what we're about to sign up. Four, then oftentimes we get trapped in a, in, a, in a contract with big execs who don't know who we are, who don't come from where we come from and stand for something different. For them, they want to make money. And so that often drives a lot of this. So I'm always thinking about where are the mentors? Sometimes we hear folks say that artists who've been in the game like Meek Mill for X amount of years who started his own record label come back and then mentor somebody like a YB, YBN Corday, who is more on the conscious side, young cat, who has a dope album called The Lost Boys, who, who, who I'm excited about, right? They compare it to a young J. Cole. But if you don't have those people come back and mentor the young folks, I think it, it will 
it will allow the industry to continue to do what, what it's doing mm. and creating a cycle of them being trapped. And so I often wonder, like, how do we bridge these, these gaps to allow those who are more informed to come back and talk to the young folks who may be in the same record label or may come from the same city? And I think Atlanta does a good job of this, right? Those mm. dudes are together. They're moving. They are supporting each other. And so I'm wondering, like, how do, how do we shift the culture so that our veterans in the hip-hop game are talking to the young folks coming in? I think if I could, what I want to push us on is that part of the conundrum that young and aging hip-hop artists and or rappers face is that they are in the wrong economic form. They're in the wrong economic structure. That's my personal opinion. Whatever structure the music industry has taken, the artist is the least economically beneficiary of it. So when artists are the least economically beneficiary of it, what will end up happening is they end up, it's easy to be crabs in a barrel, like, which is what I think you kind of a little bit elevated, Jason. It's very easy for them to be crabs in a barrel. That doesn't mean it's not a pathway to money, like compared from zero to what some of them will make is going to be money, but it's a zero sum game. They're trying to get there fast. They got to cut other people out. Like it's a, it's a, it's an economic form that doesn't allow for building. If you think about a little bit before this era, right, between 98, or let's say between, let's, all right, put it like this. We have 90, 1990 to 98, and that's the, that's the time of the crew. So you have Bad Boy, you have Uptown a little bit, and you have Death Row. When, the major, when those major labels end, you start getting aftermath. Then you start getting like rappers who get labels and have crews. And all like Nelly and the St. Lunatics got a label and 50 got a label, 50 Cent got a label and got people and, and, and um, um, even it's like Rick Ross and got MMG and those things weren't successful ultimately, right? Like ironically, maybe, um, and y'all will fact check me on this, I'm thinking on the spot, but like Meek becoming successful out of Ross's, out of MMG might be the most successful with any of these con conglomerates of any of these crews. And that's just because like the, the economic form is wrong. So what I, what I think is, what I'm waiting for is OGs, and that might be useful, useless, but like Irv Gotti. I'm looking for OGs like Mark Pitts, who used to um, manage Biggie. I'm looking for those, for those dudes to be the people, you know, hip hop, at, 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 um, I guess he had Def Jam now, who was with Ye. I'm looking for them to be like, Yo, we, we, the leadership we need from them is that we need a different model because this model has been killing us, literally, right? Rap, famous rappers don't make it past 45. It almost feels like, rest in peace, Fife, rest in peace, um, Prodigy. Black and, and Latino men, very specifically, don't make it past 60. And if they do, they don't make it in good shape. And that's all those years of Hennessy and, and everything else we've been putting in our bodies. You know what I'm saying? So. My point is that black and Latino men and their trajectory of like declining health, one, the economic form that creates these comp this competition that doesn't allow people to be built up, two, like that's the impediment, right? Are you gonna have older black and Latino men like smarten up and say, hey, 
before the next one go go into this 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 trap we're going to build something out or build something different or are you going to just end up having somebody say all right this economic system didn't work you know a little bit like chance is trying to do that a little bit so boy Goldlink, what's so boy in dc like they trying to create a different model but i my personal opinion is structural man like it's structural to why we can't build and it's troublesome and it's sad and for our survival we're gonna have to get up out of it quick and i don't think we're gonna get up out of it by telling people stop listening to you know uh, a particular type of music like i, I don't think that's going to be it there there got to be a, a, a community shift i don't think we need farrakhan you know what i'm saying i ain't saying that <laughs> but i'm saying that we we i don't know man i actually i don't know we but we need we need a shift because the economic trap of how the finances and structure of of the music industry is and then black men and latino men's propensity to not make it into old age and limits their ability to evolve that's what we up against and um i want y'all brothers to live a long time i want to live a long time and i want us to evolve and i want us to make it better for um the young people behind us but part of that is getting out of that trap man and, and no pun intended yeah i don't know that's i mean well i guess we're gonna keep talking and thinking like how do we do that and i think you said again a lot of dope things but one of the things that you said it it kind of made me think about how some of the older generation is able to like kind of give back and pass down that wisdom. And to Jay's point, I do think that sometimes there's a disconnect. This this morning I was actually listening to uh, to four four four. That actually is Jay's last album, but it might be one of my favorites. I think it, I'm elevating it to top three. But on there, the things that he's talking about, like ownership and things like that, were things that obviously he was not thinking about when he when he was was a kid, right? When he was young, and and by that same vein a lot of kids are not connecting with that album, right? So figuring out what the, what the bridge is to some of these ideas, because it's funny when I talk to my students, Jay-Z isn't cool. Like to, to them, like he's not, he's not like the guy, which is a really interesting concept to me as an as a older person, but just kind of bridging some of those ideas. And the other thing it made me think of in terms of health, right? I definitely want us all to live a long, long time, thinking about people like Styles P opening like a juice bar, right? Like which is a juice bar in the hood is, is such a, I mean, now it's not as much of a novel concept, but a rapper opening a juice bar in the hood, a vegan rapper opening up a juice bar in the hood is a, a super novel concept. So those are two of the ideas that kind of made me, made me think about. I mean, I, I think, so, let's, I want to use the juice, the juice bar as an example. We, so currently, COVID is a pandemic and COVID is like destroying black and Latino communities, Latinx communities, right? And in particular, working class people are getting hit. If you work on the front line, you're getting hit. Um, if you work in the health industry, you're getting hit. Simultaneously to all the death happening, have we heard about bereavement? Like any of these places offering bereavement? Like we know people need that when they losing folks. Have we, and this is the part that startles me. We keep talking about underlying conditions. We in the Bronx, right? We keep talking about underlying conditions. One of the greatest underlying conditions that compromise people's ability to overcome um, or being susceptible to COVID is asthma and respiratory issues, right? We live in the heart of respiratory illness in the Bronx, live and work. If now more than ever, 
when we talk about health, I'm not just talking about producing PPP, right? Or PPE, pardon. I'm not just talking about face guards and yeah, we need masks and all that too. But now more than ever, I think there is a sharp, acute need for like a health equity kind of movement and that it needs to be economic in that not only should we be giving our money to like Styles P and others, but I think we got to think about the form. You know, one of the things I do in my day job is, um, sorry, at the Bronx um, Cooperative Development Initiative, one of the things I do there, we talk about shared wealth, right? How can we increase the amount of people who hold and then share the wealth amongst each other? And so many of our students will go on to work, you know, at different type of jobs, but would they work differently if they, own, if they had ownership shares of the job? It's just a, a straightforward fact. If, it's, if they was not working for $11 an hour, $15 an hour at, at, at um, LaGuardia Airport, no disrespect to anybody having to do that, but if they was like in a business making music with the studio and like we split in five ways, the, the, the revenue that we create or the profit, like would that change how you work? If it was a, whether you want to make it colloquial, you eat what you kill, right? Which then generates a kind of a, a different aspect or that we're gonna share the wealth that this thing create. Hip hop is a long way from getting to an economic form in that way, but we need it. But I think like the health movement is something simple like the juice bar, like simple, like some carrots and some apples and some ginger, eat, drink it, it tastes all right. Right, like if we can get the economic form around that proper, how much beneficial would I, in our communities right now, again, no bereavement, Right, so we ain't getting no bereavement. People seeing family members die left and right. We're not getting bereavement. We living in communities now where asthma was a problem, continues to be a problem, now could be deadly. Like we need that health. And the juice bar at juice bars and healthy food places could be critical. We shouldn't have open um, um, storefronts in the Morrisania Park, Claremont Park, Belmont Park of the Bronx. Like what if Junior and, and, and those dudes who, who had that unfortunate incident a few years ago, what if there was like a healthy living option? You know what I'm saying? Um, so we just, I think we gotta get, I think we, 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 I think you hit it on the head. Like we gotta get right about this shared wealth and a lot of old ideas have us thinking about being owners and building power in that way and economic independence. And, and that's, that's, that's there too. But right now in the simple form, our health, is tied to our survival, but our economic conditions is tied to what's trapping us. And we got, that's the bridge that I wanna see. And I hope that some of that music could do that. But part of it is just like, we're gonna have a recovery after this pandemic. And I want us to get really sharp on a demand for like healthy food places, like startup grants, like start them up right away. Like if we can have a million corner stores and, and crown fried chicken and everything, we, we got market, there's marketplace for the healthy food and just to start thinking about our survival, man, particularly in the Bronx, I think is critical. Um, and then, you know, part of it is that if you saturate a market, does that become cool? So we talk about health not being quite as cool um, or like certain rappers not being quite as cool, but one of the oldest mechanisms to do to change that is just to saturate, right? Just saturate it. If I hear Cardi B enough times, like I, I'll know the words to the song and I like it. We do that in our classrooms, right? We try to, um, we, in our classrooms, we try to like 
emphasize certain kind of principles, values, um, um, facts, and et cetera. So podcasts like this do that. The work that you do every day when you pass somebody on the corner or a shorty at the bus waiting to go to school can do that. I think on our families, our culture, we could do that. And, and, you know, that economic model around shared wealth and ownership can become a social model for like sharing um, lessons and sharing learnings and sharing best practices. And if we saturate our lives with that, then we're going to be able to, to, to identify what's really important and build together and, and get free. Michael, again, so, so many important things to think about just because of all the disparities that exist in the Bronx that we also know, which we kind of been talking about, right? I think is intentionally created when we're talking about systems and where corporate companies often place garbage dumps when we're talking about high asthma rates, et cetera. I think there are a number of different things that we have to really think about when we're talking about health disparities. And I love that you mentioned that here because it's food for, for thought. And I think it's something we need to continue to think about with all of those gems we want to take a second to transition into something new we're trying and we want to thank you in advance for going on this quick journey with us as we try this new thing um but we want to try something called rapid fire questions so they lining that me is, up oh, i want the audience to know they lining me up <laughs> <laughs> now nah, you're built for this you're ready so what this is is we have five questions that we're going to ask we're going to ask them one by one so at the end of the first question you respond and then the next question, you respond, and we continue on throughout the five questions, right? So it's kind of quick. So, for example, if I say, what's your name? You say Mike. Michael. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We keep going. So let's jump right into it. The first question, what's your favorite hip-hop album? Illmatic. One word to describe the Jordan documentary, Last Dance. Compulsive. What is the most impactful book you ever read? autobiography of Malcolm X. Who is one of your biggest inspirations? My grandmother. If you had to, to describe yourself in three words, what would those three words be? Unrelenting, competitive, culture, cultural. Brother, you killed that. We, right. you, you, you're built for this. I'm telling you, ready. That's <laughs> a, that was really dope, right? And I think, um, you know, these are, these are, important things for us to just think about but also we want to have a little fun i know you know so so it's almost kind of capturing everything you said within these five questions which we didn't even plan for but worked out so smoothly so that is rapid fire with your boy jay i'm going to turn it over to kb now no doubt no doubt so rapid fire let us know email us let us know if you like it we plan on bringing it back i think it's a lot of fun mike thanks for being the guinea pig i think you handled it really well so at this point, I just want to start to wrap up. I want to say thank you so much for joining us. I think you gave us, not I think, you gave us a ton of things to think about in terms of how we, how we form our community, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of what it means to be a free black person, right? Mm-hmm. And how, 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 how you get there, right? It's, mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's a, a journey, not necessarily just a destination, right? I think over time, right, we're all trying to move toward that free black space. So thank you so much for that. But you gave us so much to think about, right? Just in terms of mentoring, mentoring these younger artists, right? They're, we're not saying not to listen to that music is not necessarily the approach we need to take, but we need to kind of elevate them to, to we need to be able to kind of share some of the, the gems that some of these older folks have to kind of impart on them as well. So 
with all that being said, we greatly appreciate you. And thank you for joining. We have to do a part two because we didn't even get to really hit on all the work that you're doing, right? But I think this was a needed conversation. And like Jay said, it kind of flowed and we kind of landed where we landed in a really organic and dope place. So once again, at this point, we would like to thank you, Mike Partners, for joining our podcast today. We really appreciate it, brother. So Jay, if you could, uh, if you could throw out the social medias for me. Absolutely. You can follow Live from the Bronx on Instagram at Live from the Bronx, that's B-R-O-N-X. You can follow us on Twitter at Live from the B-X to stay up to date with everything that we have going on. Also, be sure to tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tune in and check us out, streaming on all major platforms. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with us. With that, we're going to close out with KB. No doubt, no doubt. If you like what you hear, definitely let us know on the social medias that JJ just gave out. And Mike, if you could do us a favor, let the people know your social medias if they want to follow you and stalk you and ask you a million questions because you have so much knowledge to give. And I got so much time in the world to answer all those questions. Um, <laughs> I have those convos. You, uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, Mike, M-I-K-E underscore Partis, P-A-R-T-I-S. Mike underscore Partis at Twitter. Um, that's where you can find me. And that's where I engage the most. Um, and then from there, like, just ping me. And then, you know, if we want to build about something to connect, we can do that. Or harass these guys in their social media. They can find me and tag me too. Team effort, community building, right? No doubt, sure. no doubt. Yo, we are three free black men and we out of here. Episode nine, we done, y'all. Free the land. Thanks for having me, y'all. Peace.